Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcasts, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You could listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, NHK World Radio Japan, France 24, and Radio Havana Cuba. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Henry Kissinger is dead at 100 years old. His legacy includes the Vietnam War, Cambodia, and Pinochet. As British filmmaker Ken Loach said, satire died the day that Henry Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. For some, he was the ultimate statesman. For others, a highly controversial figure. But there's no doubt that Henry Kissinger shaped post-war U.S. and global history more than almost any person. Now the diplomat, politician, and Nobel Peace Prize winner has died. He passed away at his home in New England. He was 100 years old. For more on the death of Henry Kissinger, I'm now joined by Washington correspondent Benjamin Alvarez Gruber. Now, he truly has one of the legacies that is hard to be overshadowed in current American history, but remind our viewers exactly why his legacy is so controversial among some corners of American politics. His death is met with polarized reactions around the world because the decisions that he took by using diplomacy to achieve practical objectives cost many lives in different countries. So while some, especially here in the United States, see Kissinger as a political visionary, others call him a warmonger, go even further calling him a war criminal because the decisions that he took it cost also lives in Vietnam. If we look at Cambodia, if we look at neighboring Laos, also what the effects of this real politic uh, that Kissinger always used to have this influence and also advance U.S. politics around the globe. But it's important also to remember the role that Henry Kissinger played by, pre by pressing President Nixon into overthrowing the democratically elected President Salvador Allende in Chile in 1973. And by doing so, he effectively enabled the rise of Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet, whose government killed and tortured thousands of people. There are documents that are coming to light now. The National Archive also shows uh, that he pressed and overruled his aides on military regimes, uh, human rights atrocities, and even told Pinochet in 1976 that he did a great service to the West in overthrowing uh, Allende. He was confident until the death that he did the right things, not only in Chile, but also in some of the other countries uh, that I mentioned and asked in an interview in the lead up to his 100th birthday about those who view his conduct of foreign policy over the years as kind of a criminal, mm -hmm. he said, that was nothing but dismissive on the fact, saying that it was just a reflection of their ignoring. So for some, a political visionary, for others, a warmonger, but definitely a, a controversial figure that shaped U.S. policy as we know it. All right. And with his death, uh, there was the end of a legacy. Thank you very much, Benjamin Alvarez Gruber, for your reporting. 
That report was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Also available at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. Next, NHK World Radio Japan. The South Korean, Japanese, and U.S. militaries staged military drills with a U.S. nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. The 28th Climate Change Conference, COP28, has opened in the United Arab Emirates. Countries are expected to update their emissions plans and the possibility of phasing out fossil fuels. NHK Japan The South Korean military says it has staged joint drills with Japan and the U.S. with the participation of a U.S. nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. The exercise comes at a time when Pyongyang is forging ahead with its nuclear and missile programs. The South Korean Navy says the exercise took place on Sunday in international waters southeast of the country's southern island of Jeju. It says the USS Carl Vinson joined with vessels from Japan's Maritime Self-Defense Force and its Navy. The exercise involved an air defense drill based on simulated situations such as a North Korean missile launch. The exercise was held following Pyongyang's launch last week of what it claims to be a military reconnaissance satellite. The South Korean Navy said the three countries carried out the drills to bolster defense cooperation amid the North's nuclear and missile threats. Next, the 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference has kicked off in the United Arab Emirates. The annual meeting is a chance for world leaders to assess the global response to the climate crisis. The UAE is deeply proud and humbled to be hosting COP28 at a pivotal time in this critical decade for climate action. We know, as you know, the gravity of this moment. Delegates from more than 190 countries and regions are taking part. This year, they'll be taking stock of their climate goals and how much progress they've made under the 2015 Paris Agreement to limit the rise of the global temperature to one and a half degrees Celsius. Countries are expected to update their plans for cutting emissions based on this assessment. Much of the focus is expected to be on the future of fossil fuels and whether they should commit to phasing out coal, oil and gas. Now, there will be some notable absences, including Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden. China and the U.S. remain the world's biggest emitters of greenhouse gases. Ahead of his departure to Dubai, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio said he hopes the conference will signal Japan's commitment to eliminating carbon emissions in the region. Japan will take the lead in Asia, which accounts for half of the world's emissions, by mobilizing our technological and financial capabilities. The question now is whether countries can find common ground on climate action as much of the world's focus remains on the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the Gaza Strip. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan on shortwave. They are now heard at 9 p.m. at 13735 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. 
NHK may also be found at most podcast sites. On to France 24. A brief history of United Nations climate change conferences, which began in 1992 in Brazil. A press review on the opening of this year's UN climate conference. Chloe Brimacombe, a British climate scientist, analyzes controversies at the COP28 summit. Then a brief review of the climate change in Brazil and Canada. France 24. The Earth Summit in Rio was the first time that more than 100 heads of state and government gathered together in one room to talk climate. Establishing sustainable development as a basis for international cooperation, at least in theory. The world is our garden and together we must cultivate it. Five years later, the Kyoto Protocol was signed. Developed countries pledged to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by at least 5% compared to 1990 levels. One big problem, the world's biggest emitters, the US, China and India, were not bound by the text. In 2009, the aim of COP15 in Copenhagen was an international agreement to fight climate change. Although the US and China helped draft a last-minute joint statement, it was not widely adopted. The 2015 edition in France was considered a resounding success. The Paris Agreement was the first treaty to commit the entire international community to the fight against climate change, pledging to maintain the rise in the global average temperature to, quote, well below two degrees compared to pre-industrial levels. Signatories also agreed to assess their efforts every five years. Eight years on, the UN says much more must be done to meet the goals set in Paris. Now, the much-contested and heavily criticised COP28, beginning in Dubai. Uh, what are the papers saying on that? Well, despite the summit uh, still opening under a cloud of judgment and a windstorm of criticism, uh, the National, this is a Dubai daily there, uh, quotes Sheikh uh, Mohammed as uh, saying that uh, uh, he'll be vowing for, a global for global climate actions and promises of uniting the world with the summit. But, uh, as I said, the summit is opening under a lot of criticism, not least of all, uh, because it is being hosted by Dubai, a petrostate, as the New York Times puts it. Uh, the article, though, offers a more nuanced view of that criticism, criticism explaining that Dubai itself finds itself in a uh, pretty uh, difficult conundrum. If the world abandons oil too quickly, its entire revenue will virtually evaporate uh, at the same time. If not enough is done to curb emissions, soaring global temperatures could make Dubai unlivable for future generations one day. So you see that sort of conundrum that Dubai fa faces today. The summit, um, no stranger to uh, scandals? Well, it seems like it's always the same scandal, though. This is the thing, uh, Daily Mail focusing on this. Uh, uh, King Charles, Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, and Lord David Cameron, his uh, Foreign Secretary, will be attending COP28, each of them travelling on their own private jet. <laughs> to get to Dubai, 10 Downing Street, strongly defending the decision, saying the other ministers would fly commercial. Let's bring in for the analysis a climate scientist. She's Chloe Brimicum uh, from the Wegener Center at the University of Graz in uh, Austria. Chloe, thanks for being with us. How do you feel when you hear such allegations that the host of COP28 was ready to use the forum to peddle his fossil fuel businesses? I think there was a lot of concern in the run-up to this COP because we know that 
this is going to be the biggest COP we've had to date. Um, and most of the delegates that were invited were to do with the fossil fuel industry. However, I attended COP in Egypt last year and there was concerns in the lead up to this one as well. And what you don't see um, on the news is there is a lot of local scale and international organisations that come together at COP. And although progress is sometimes slow in international negotiations, there is a lot of um, ongoing um, initiatives to fight climate change. Um, and this year we also see the first health day, which is really important because climate change affects our health as well as other parts of our daily lives. Indeed, it does affect our health. And as you say, it's a very important aspect, Chloe. But is this issue with uh, the Sultan a sign that maybe some delegates aren't really taking the situation as seriously as they should? Or do they just see it as a way that they can cash in? There is definitely a lot of concern. I mean, we've seen a lot of extreme weather around the world that is increasing as a result of our changing climate. And we've already heard um, in the lead up with COP starting tomorrow that there is concerns over the use of fossil fuel phase out in some of the texts. And we need a fossil fuel phase out. We need a green transition urgently if we are going to keep global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, and we've seen that this year is go on record to be the hottest on record and we really don't want to miss the opportunity which is getting shorter and shorter to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees celsius and have these impacts that we saw in the summer in europe um, happening year on year and getting worse indeed and i remind people that you are a climate scientist this isn't an activist talking this is someone who's looking at these things with the cold scientific eye this is the situation we are in. What was pledged in Paris all those years ago isn't probably going to happen, is it? It seems very unlikely. And this year we will be able to tell whether countries um, are on target. We know so far from scientific evidence that it seems that they aren't. And we know that we need countries to be more ambitious about their plans to cut emissions, whether this is carbon emissions, but also another greenhouse gas, methane, which also um, increases our warming. Um, but we also need governments to be serious about loss and damage funding which will be a big focus of this COP and also adaptation funding because as we saw in a report by the UN Environmental Programme this last week, um, there is an inequality in those cutting emissions but also those impacted by the worst effects of climate change. As the world looks to address climate change at the COP28 summit in Dubai, we take a look at the effects of extreme weather across the Americas, from Canada to the Amazon in Brazil, and whether or not the region's leaders are prepared to tackle the issue. Well, Brazil suffered through a sweltering heat wave in November. The country recorded its hottest ever temperature of 44.8 degrees Celsius, though humidity made it feel like 59.3 degrees in a stadium where American pop star Taylor Swift performed. Now, she was forced to postpone her heiress tour after a fan tragically succumbed to the scorching heat. 
Those extreme temperatures then have been attributed both to global warming and to the El Nino weather pattern, which have also brought on the worst drought on record in Amazonas, which is Brazil's largest state. Well, despite near total scientific consensus on the reality of climate change, progress on addressing it is still falling victim to politics. The two largest political parties in Canada have been sparring over Justin Trudeau's landmark carbon tax, which for some has the irreconcilable goal of reducing reliance on fossil fuels while protecting the purchasing power of the most vulnerable. Charlie James has the story. Axe the tax. That's the slogan of Canada's opposition leader, Pierre Poliev. He's leading the Conservative Party's war against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's signature carbon tax. The carbon tax was created to discourage use of fossil fuels and accelerate a switch to clean energy. But Poliev argues it's an unfair cost for consumers. The government cannot tax what the people do not approve. And the people do not approve of this carbon tax. They want us to axe the tax, to bring home lower prices, to bring home our food production and our self-reliance and independence to this country. The Trudeau administration aims to slash Canada's total carbon emissions 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. And the centerpiece of its climate plan is the carbon tax. Since 2019, fossil fuel distributors and large industrial emitters must pay the tax on each ton of emissions generated. This year, it's 65 Canadian dollars per ton, but it's set to increase each year until 2030. This cost gets passed down to Canadians at the gas station and for heating their homes. But amid soaring living costs, Trudeau decided to exempt home heating oil from the carbon tax, pushing the controversial policy back into the spotlight. But we have to make sure we're fighting climate change in ways that supports all Canadians. That is why today we are announcing a three-year pause on the federal pollution price on heating oil so that we can give everyone the time and ability to switch to heat pumps. Trudeau justified the exemption, saying those who rely on home heating oil are the most vulnerable, lower-income households. But conservatives renewed calls for the climate tax to be scrapped altogether. And according to an October opinion poll, support for the carbon tax has dropped 11 points in two years. The political stakes are high for Trudeau. A vote is not due until 2025, but polls show opposition leader Pierre Poliev would clobber the prime minister if an election were held today. That interview and press reviews were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could support this listener-funded program, contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations around the world. Many, many thanks to everyone who has ever supported this show. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba, a viewpoint on the importance of the COP28 summit. This weekend, Venezuela is holding a referendum over a territorial dispute with Guyana.
A hunger strike is underway in front of the White House in support of a Gaza ceasefire. The World Health Organization called the Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza a death zone where 200 doctors and nurses have been killed by Israeli attacks. A surgeon from Doctors Without Borders reported that he treated 100 patients suffering from Israel's use of white phosphorus bombs in violation of international humanitarian law. Radio Havana, Cuba. The 28th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, a new attempt to curb the climate crisis the planet is experiencing, the outlook for this meeting is not at all hopeful. A first report on the Paris Agreement, signed in 2015, showed that the world is far from meeting the objectives to contain global warming below 2 degrees. In fact, at the current rate of greenhouse gas emissions, which cause global warming, the world is heading towards an increase in its average temperature of between 2.5 and 2.9 degrees Celsius this century. This is confirmed by the annual report on emissions of these harmful gases, which is a serious warning of the catastrophe the planet may face in the not-too-distant future. Inger Anderson, Executive Director of UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, urged developed nations, which are responsible for 80% of these emissions, to take the lead in effectively reducing them. Experts believe that a change is needed to encourage even more the use of renewable energy sources and the abandonment of fossil fuels. An urgency that clashes with the interests of the most industrialized countries and the major producers of oil, coal and gas. Another issue to be taken into account is support for the least developed countries to achieve this energy transition and mitigate the negative consequences of the climate crisis because although they are the least polluting countries on the planet, they suffer the most from the phenomenon associated with climate change. In the face of record global temperatures and the increasingly frequent and intense natural phenomena affecting the world's population, it is urgent to adopt more ambitious actions and commitments in favor of the planet. The 28th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is a new opportunity on this path that should not be missed, as time is running out and the survival of humanity is at risk. Venezuelan Vice President Delcy Rodriguez has strongly criticized Vice President of Guyana, Barat Jagdeo, for the new attempts to delegitimize the referendums for which Venezuelans would ratify the historical rights of their nation over the Essequibo territory. Barat Quote, I realize the sad role you play as an employee of the ExxonMobil, a sad role for a leader. You seem more interested in filling ExxonMobil's pockets than addressing the people of Guyana, she said. Quote, I'll give you advice at the twilight of your political career. Don't mess with the women of Venezuela. It will go very badly with you. On December the 3rd, the Venezuelan people will exercise their right to vote, and the next day there will be a beautiful dawn for Venezuela. Together, we will overcome, Rodriguez added. State lawmakers and Palestinian rights supporters, joined by actor and progressive advocate Cynthia Nixon, have launched a five-day hunger strike against the White House to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. 
At a news conference on Monday, the activists decried U.S. President Joe Biden's role in supporting the Israeli offensive in Gaza and called for an immediate end to the fighting. The hunger strike adds to the growing demand for a ceasefire from activists, artists and politicians, as well as staff members working in the U.S. government. But Biden has so far resisted such calls, voicing unwaverable support for Israel. Biden has also pledged more than $14 billion in additional U.S. aid to Israel, funds that advocates say are contributing to the Israeli violence. The protesters at Monday's event stressed that public opinion polls show the most Americans back a ceasefire. They also underscored the scale of the destruction in Gaza, where more than 14,800 Palestinians have died. United Nations experts have warned that the conflict puts Palestinians at a grave risk of genocide. Al-Shifa Hospital has been a major focus of Israel's ground offensive in northern Gaza, with the World Health Organization, the United Nations Health Agency, calling it a death zone. More than 200 medical personnel have been killed, and most hospitals shut down in the weeks of indiscriminate bombing by Israel. The Israeli army ordered an evacuation of Gaza's largest medical facility on November the 18th but it was not possible to evacuate all the patients, as for some, an evacuation would have presented high health risks. Many of the injured who were not mobile remained in the hospital after its evacuation on November the 18th. Israeli forces, which raided the hospital last week, alleged that Hamas fighters used a tunnel complex beneath the facility in Gaza City to stage attacks. Hamas and hospital officials have repeatedly denied the claims. Israel has also taken into custody Mohammed Abu Salmir, the director of Al-Shifa Hospital. A British-Palestinian surgeon has recounted harrowing healthcare-related ordeals that Palestinian civilians went through during Israel's onslaught on the besieged Gaza Strip, that was initiated after Palestinian resistance groups launched Operation Al-Aqsa Storm against the occupying entity, the largest retaliatory attack in decades. Professor Ghassan Abu Sita, who travelled with Doctors Without Borders via Egypt to Gaza on the 9th of October to work in the besieged territory's hospitals as a surgeon, said in a press conference in London on Monday that he had seen evidence of war crimes, including the use of white phosphorus on civilians. Sita, who worked in both Al-Shifa and Al-Ahli hospitals in Gaza said fragmentary missiles were used by the Israeli occupation army to attack Gaza, causing unique injury patterns and amputations. At the Burns unit in Al-Shifa hospital, he said, some 40 to 45 percent of the wounded were children, and the primary target of the Israeli bombing was residential homes stressing that incendiary bombs were used against Palestinian civilians. Sita said he treated 100 patients with 40% of their body surface area burned, but no other injuries. 
The British Palestinian surgeon said 160 doctors and nurses lost their lives during the occupation's aggression on the Strip. Since the start of the aggression, the Tel Aviv regime has killed nearly 15,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children, and left vast swathes of coastal enclaves in ruins. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though there are no podcasts. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6,000, 6060, or 9,700. At their website, radiohc.cu, you could stream the English version from noon on Monday through Friday Pacific Standard Time. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am still recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.